Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Welcome to Strong Voices, coming to you from the Karma Radio Studios on Arundel Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vice Channel 911 on Aitken FM in Burnt Alice Springs via the Karma app and online at www.caama.com.au. Today is Wednesday the 28th of August 2019. My name is Damien Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up on today's program, we will hear about a federal court case that is currently underway challenging the coalition government's decision to give the go-ahead for a Chinese coal mine on Gomoroi country. We we will also hear about the Alice Springs Town Council's decision to fly the Aboriginal flag on top of Anzac Hill for 364 days of the year. And finally, we will hear about a first-of-its-kind racism survey on school students. We will also hear the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news. Hey, this is Cathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. In April 2015, the Gomorrah Traditional Custodians of Central New South Wales and Central South Queensland sought a declaration from the Commonwealth Environment Minister to protect several significant areas from destruction by a proposed Chinese open-cut coal mine on the Liverpool Plains in northwest New South Wales. Brendan Dobby, Principal Solicitor with the Environment Environmental Defenders Office, New South Wales, is acting for v- Veronica Dolly Talbot, a member of the Gom- Gomorrah Traditional Custodians, who is suing Environmental Environment Minister S- Susan Lay after she rejected her- their heritage protection bid in favour of a constitution controversial Chinese coal projection. The Environmental Defenders Office is a a public interest environmental law organisation and we also do a lot of work with Aboriginal clients in relation to the protection of cultural heritage. Our remit is to represent community groups and Aboriginal groups and other environmental groups who want to bring their cases to the court but otherwise wouldn't have sufficient funding to do that. So we've filed this challenge in the federal court, uh, which is at its kind of very early stages, the first preliminary hearing. It's our job to argue before the court that the minister has made a decision that wasn't in keeping with the requirements of the Act and is therefore unlawful and should be invalidated. It's likely that a hearing will happen before the end of the year and then we'll wait for the court's decision, um, which is likely to be early next year, and then we'll find out 
the result of the case. But I think regardless of the result, it's likely to set a precedent because there has been very little case law in relation to this particular piece of legislation. So it's likely to have significant ramifications for other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups that are seeking to use this act to to protect their cultural heritage, regardless of, of what the ultimate outcome is. We'll hopefully see a clarification of the law as to what the minister can and can't do. Our client, which is the Gomorroy Traditional Custodian, and we're representing their spokesperson, uh, Veronica Dolly-Talbot, put in applications under the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act back in 2015 and then a further application in 2017 to the federal minister seeking protection over a number of sites of very high significance and cultural heritage value within the proposed uh, footprint of the Shenhua Watermark coal mine, which is proposed for the livable plains of New South Wales. The current minister, Minister Lee, decided to refuse those applications earlier this year in, uh, in June and July, and that's the subject of the current federal court challenge, that those refusals. Now, even though the minister acknowledged that the uh, areas that the Gomorrah sought protection for were immeasurable areas of cultural heritage and that the uh, construction of the proposed mine would destroy those areas and that the New South Wales law, in fact, did nothing to protect them, she still went ahead and refused, citing the social and economic benefits that would flow to the local community from the mine if it went ahead as the reason that she decided not to issue those protective declarations. Our client is arguing that uh, those decisions were invalid, having regard um, firstly to the, the purpose of the Heritage Protection Act, which in fact is to to protect uh, cultural heritage and also the constitutional basis for the Act and implying that there is a limit on the Minister's discretion when she is deciding whether or not to protect cultural heritage under that Act. And in this case, she stepped outside the bounds of that discretion um, such that her decision was unlawful. This case was interesting in that the Minister in fact acknowledged that all of the sites for which the Gomorrah sought protection were uh, highly significant, um, uh, but nonetheless, she she still decided that the the economic uh, and social benefits from the mine um, outweighed the protection of that cultural heritage. So it, it's um, it's different to other applications that we've been involved in um, for other clients uh, where there's often a decision by the minister that the the threshold of significance isn't met Um, and and I guess that's why this decision is is so uh, significant in that there was a clear acknowledgement of the high value and significance of these sites but nonetheless the decision was still made uh, not to issue those protective declarations. You said that there has been very few few cases uh, similar to this. I mean, have there been any cases that you could draw reference to? There have been a handful, but the, the, the particular facts of this matter are quite
quite unique, um, so there isn't a whole lot of guidance that can be drawn from the cases that have been decided. The Minister made her decision while acknowledging the cultural significance of the site. She said the potential economic returns outweighed the cultural significance. Um, Again, when we look at environmental issues, there seems to be a standoff between environmental cultural issues versus big money. That's certainly the approach that the Minister has taken in that matter. I mean, she she's required to undertake, I guess, a balancing exercise under the Act, um, and, and she's found that regardless of the significance of these sites, um, the fact that this particular mine is going to have the social and economic benefits that she sees as flowing from that mine, and that has led to her decision to, to refuse to make those protective declarations. And then that, I guess, is the reason why the, the Gomorrah people are upset about this decision and are doing everything they can to seek to challenge that. This is obviously going to take some time. I mean, what grounds would the government have to challenge? If the decision goes with the Gomorrah people, uh, what happens then? Well, that would mean that the minister's decision that she's made to refuse the applications would be invalidated by the court and she would then be required to remake those decisions according to the, the proper procedure and law uh, that's set out by the Act. There's not necessarily a guarantee that um, a future decision would be made to grant a protective declaration, but hopefully there would be some guidance from the court as to what the proper process is in that circumstance. Is there a possibility, though, that it can go to another level? Yes, yeah, so it's currently in the federal court, and there are obviously appeal mechanisms uh, from the federal court all the way up to the high court. So depending on what the decision is, and we're still a long way away from that. As I mentioned, we're we're just at the very beginning of these proceedings. It's unlikely that the federal court will issue their judgment this year, but there are appeal mechanisms, firstly, to the, the full bench of the federal court and then to the high court after that. We're very happy and and privileged to be working with the Gomorrah traditional custodians and to be acting for Dolly Talbot in this case. We're confident that we can run a strong argument and and hopefully get some good precedent and um, a good result for the Gomorrah in their continued fight to protect their cultural heritage. Paul Wiles was talking with with Brendan Dobby, Principal Solicitor with the Environmental Defenders Office in New South Wales. We'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. Hey Mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Since November of 2017, Alice Springs Town Councillor, Aranda and Mirroring Woman, Catherine Satua, has pushed for the Aboriginal flag to be flown all year round on top of Anzac Hill, a place that has dual significance to the Central Islander people and those men and women that have served our country in times of war. And in... And in an historic moment for the town of Mbanta Alice Springs, the Aboriginal flag will be flying for 364 days of the year. I spoke with Town Councillor Catherine Satour about this historic moment. It's a really great day today. It's a historic day today for Mbanta Alice Springs. Uh, Alice Springs Town Council has supported the Aboriginal flag to fly on Anzac Hill 
uh, all year round in line with the Australian National Flag Protocols, which means it will fly all year except Anzac Day because we only have three posts up there and the Aboriginal flag has to come down for the New Zealand flag to be raised. And Remembrance Day, all flags, so the Australian flag, the Northern Territory flag and the Aboriginal flag will be flown at half-mast. Oh, cool. So Mm -hmm. it will stay up there for Remembrance Day? Yes, it will. What sort of things had to happen. What, what kind of things were you trying to do? And, and, you know, obviously you were trying to get the flag uh, flown on behalf of all Aboriginal people here in Alice Springs. But what kind of things um, did you have to try and trying to do to get it flown? When I was uh, running for council election, my focus was on strengthening our community and getting Aboriginal people involved more in conversations because I could see a lot of conversations were going on but there wasn't a lot of inclusion of Aboriginal people and I think that's really important because Aboriginal people's voices and views need to be at the table about some discussions. So for me, the Aboriginal flag was a continuation of a 20-year ask. So many, many uh, local custodians, the Toronto people have been asking for the flag to be flown for just over 20 years. And it was a motion that I tabled back in November 2017 and it was met with a lot of uh, resistance and a lot of requests to go and get further information, further documentation to table and support. And I did all that, pulled it all together, tabled it. So everything that was asked of me to go and prove was done and that's when we did get the flag to fly for three occasions of the year, which was NADOC week. Reconciliation Week and National Sorry Day. Uh, of course, the original ask was for uh, all year round, but there was a compromise. And then I kind of stepped away from it, Damien, just to uh, allow the community to take control of the conversation and really drive that push. And over the last uh, 12 months or more, the community has really driven that, showing that, hey, we want the flag up more often, we want to be involved, we want to be have a seat at the table at you know important discussions, and um, so I, I didn't realise that this was going to be an item of discussion at a recent meeting. Uh, I think it was about two weeks ago, and I saw the opportunity to to table it because obviously it's been well in the media that uh, the community is behind it, and it was great to see the influence of our community really swing the change, I suppose, of um, the position of councillors who previously didn't support it. And um, the flag's up. The flag is up. And um, we are now in discussion about, um, you know, having um, a celebration to put the flag up for all year round. And do you think, like you were saying before, it's sort of a symbol of solidarity. Do you think it has really, and this is a step towards solidarity within the community of Alice Springs? I think it's an absolute positive step towards reconciliation. Our community uh, wanting to work together and to be stronger, to be better, to be more mature. And also, you know, it's, it's a positive step towards Aboriginal people leading discussions about a lot of our complex issues, about a lot of the concerns that we have in the community about addressing those issues, because that needs to be more strongly heard. It's a very positive way to show that council is serious and wants to work better with local Aboriginal organisations. So we currently, council has a, an MOU and an agreement with uh, Tanganjura and Luritupa 
So I think it's a positive step towards building trust, uh, towards you know a positive relationship with those organisations and and you know and all Aboriginal people in the community. And. You know, with other uh, councils around the country, um, you know, choosing to fly the Aboriginal flag and Torres Strait Islander flag at their places of importance. Just wondering why it took uh, so long for, you know, the the figurative birthplace of the Aboriginal flag to have it flown. Well, um, that is a very good question, Damien. Um, I... I really don't have the answer other than, you know, we're at we're at this place now where the flag is recognised and supported to fly on the hill uh, because of the community support that backed it. And not just Aboriginal people, but a wide sector of diverse community members. So we're at this position now and, yes, there is a conversation about the Trisha Islander flag, but first and foremost, as Alice Springs is geographically located on Mbantua, Central Aranda country. Let's acknowledge Central Aranda people first and foremost and then have a conversation about, you know, the Torres Strait Islander flag to fly on, um, you know, Aranda country. So would that mean, you know, try, uh, erecting another pole or, or, or something like that as well? Or Yeah, so um, those discussions will take place. Our report is being prepared right now and we'll have those discussions uh, in council and with the community um, at, at the appropriate time. But for right now, there is a footing and a pole and a flag to put the uh, Aboriginal flag on Anzac Hill, a dual site of significance. So it's a war memorial and a, a central Aranda cultural site. We can put that flag up as soon as possible. And then, yeah, conversations about the Torres Strait Islander flag, whether it's on Anzac Hill or at the Civic Centre, that's a, that's a further discussion to have in council and with the community. On that note, uh, Councillor Catherine Satua, thanks very much for talking to us here on Calm Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was uh, Alice Springs Town Councillor Catherine Satua ending that report. We'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. I can see now, the rain is gone. Hi, this is Dawn Fraser and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. And welcome back to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio, 8KN FM. And joining me in the studio now, we have uh, Karma's Kyle Darling. Kyle, good morning. Good morning, Damien, and good morning to all our listeners around the country today. Great to be with you. And uh, we are here to talk about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. And Kyle, your story um, I saw the other day as well is about uh, um, the state of Aboriginal teachers and, and the lack of the number of them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is a report from the ABC which is talking about uh, apparently just one in 100 teachers are in fact Indigenous and they're talking about, I guess, the potential impact that can have on, on students throughout their schooling life. Uh, so, obviously, in terms of having that representation, we're going to be hearing a report later in terms of talking about um, racial discrimination within schools. Obviously, that process of having, you know, teachers who I guess you're able to relate to and, and identify perhaps with in that space is obviously, you know, something that can potentially impact whether people go into the field or, the, you know, perhaps even their uh, p- 
perspective in terms of uh, looking at education. So uh, some of the things that's been mentioned in this report from the ABC is that uh, despite 11% of um, students being Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, only three students, uh, three teachers identified as Indigenous, and this is talking about, a, I believe, schools in Queensland. Uh, and it's talking about how some of the teachers aren't too open to talk about their background and uh, about potentially being concerned about being labelled and things like that. Uh, so obviously within this space, uh, you know, having those diverse backgrounds, we've heard from, you know, various different uh, groups through this process, through the ABC, talking with the different people who are talking about, uh, I guess, again, that impact it can have when you're able to see the different uh, teachers within this space and, and what sort of impacts, as we know, it's not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, it's, it's other sort of ethnic groups as well within this space. And we're still seeing, I think, uh, at the national level, not enough of that other representation within these spaces. So I guess, again, it comes back to the question of why we aren't seeing the different teachers from these backgrounds involved in this space and is it partly because we don't have those teachers at the moment people aren't seeing it as an environment where they're perhaps represented or, or things like that or perhaps you know they're seeing it as not an environment that they can relate to so definitely something that I think impacts people's sort of uh, perspectives within those environments yeah and you know like you're saying it um it, it's it can play a big part in in um, what do you call it? Uh, inspiring our younger mob too to um, finish school and and do that kind of stuff as well. Like you think about a career in teaching and education as well. Yeah, well, my mum, uh, she's been involved in education for quite some time, but eventually she did go on. Uh, and actually do a teaching degree and is actually teaching at the moment. So I think within that space, you know, um, where I think she has a few different uh, Aboriginal students and she's actually trying to use specific wording like, um, you know, lakunga and stuff like stuff like that to make, yeah. to make it, I guess, yeah, a yeah. very relatable, relatable. space in, in, in where she is. And, and she was telling me how that, you know, just using a, a word like that is able to make her smile and, and make her feel more comfortable in that environment. So I think... There is definitely importance in terms of having teachers, whether it's Indigenous background or whatever, um, in terms of being able to engage in that space as well, I think is will have that impact. Yeah, and um, just joined by Carmen's Paul Wiles as well, Paul. Yeah, I, I also think it's important to, um, you know, particularly um, use... Uh, local knowledge as well. I mean, um, mm-hmm. you know, apart from having teachers, I mean, there are uh, many within the local community who may not necessarily have teaching degrees, but across a broad range of areas, health and education, we are seeing more and more now of, um, you know, connecting with traditional people and to use and share their knowledge and, and, and their history um, with uh, non-Indigenous students. Um, and Alice Springs and Bantwer is, you know, a, an ideal setting for that because we have living culture around us. So, you know, I think there should be... I'm not saying that schools aren't already doing it, but, I mean, mm. it's certainly a model that could go to the rest of the country. I mean, we know, uh, you know, in the eastern seaboard... Uh, you know, many Aboriginal people were removed from country and pushed inland. Um, you know, their traditional lands and country is still relevant and uh, their uh, descendants um, have a rightful place to share that cultural knowledge with, with non-Indigenous peoples. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, and Paul, uh, what story did you have for us this morning? Well, I've just pulled this one off from uh, courtesy of the Fifth Estate, uh, our planet, our real estate. A new infrastructure investment fund is helping funnel more private capital into large-scale solar and other critical assets for Aboriginal communities. The uh, Indigenous Infrastructure Investment Fund was launched a few months ago by Infrastructure Investment Manager, Impact Investment Partners. Um, According to the manager, um, Chris Chris Croker, who's a literature man from Central Australia, will follow Chris up. The purpose of the fund is to improve Indigenous economic participation and access to infrastructure services such as reliable electricity, clean and safe drinking water, improved health care and better access to quality education. Uh, the fund will create jobs for uh, Aboriginal people and boost economic engagement through p- procurement and leasing from Indigenous landholders. The fund will not only deliver positive social impact for Aboriginal communities, it will also deliver attractive returns for investors. So, flashing dollar signs. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's hope. Anyway, we'll give uh, Chris Croker a ring. We'll find out all about it and uh, see what the big picture is. Um, yeah, that sounds... Uh, I've, I've always been fascinated why um, Australia isn't um, leading the world in solar technology. Well, and again, uh, you know, we know that in remote Aboriginal communities, um, you know, the mob aren't going anywhere. They're going to be here... <laughs> Um, just as long as they've already been here. So, you know, uh, we know that um, the provision of services is essential um, and, um, you know, a great investment opportunity now for people to um, put something into that that will give them a, a viable return. Yes, exactly. And uh, guys, thanks very much for joining us for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. Thanks, Damien. Cheers. We're going to go to a quick break and we'll be right back with more Strong Voices. Hey, you fellas. This is Gail Marbe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8kin FM. Saw the Speak Out Against Racism survey was led by the Australian National University of Western, Western and Western Sydney University. In participation with the with Victorian and New South Wales Education Departments and the Australian Human Rights Commission, according to the report, six in ten students witnessed racism, and almost twenty percent of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students reported experiences of racial discrimination from their teachers. Kalmas Kyle Dowling spoke with, with the lead researcher from ANU Associate Professor Naomi Priest, who explains how and why the survey was conducted. So this is a survey where we surveyed students in years 5 to 9 across New South Wales and Victoria in primary schools and high schools, about 4,500 students in government schools. And what we wanted to do was to find out about their experiences of racial discrimination, their responses to it and how it was impacting on their health and well-being. I mean, we know you only have to switch on the TV or... I'm sure for many of your listeners, it's it's not new information that, that racism is a major issue, but we really wanted to, to document that and really document the burden of that, those experiences of racism for children and young people 
to prompt action in this area, but also provide a benchmark so that we can track progress over time. And in terms of how this survey was conducted, was it just like a, mm. a question-based thing or how did that work? Yeah, so it was a series of questions. They had this amazing team of research assistants who went out to schools and went into classrooms and students filled in surveys. So quite an extensive operation, as you can imagine. What have the surveys revealed so far? What we found is that one in three students report experiencing racial discrimination and that the burden of those experiences are, you know, unsurprisingly far higher for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students and for students from ethnic minority backgrounds. They're twice as likely to report those experiences, as well as students who are born overseas. And the majority of students, around two-thirds, also reported witnessing other students experiencing discrimination. So this is something that is impacting on um, nearly all children and young people and, again, is, is a major issue for them. I mean, that, that's obviously, like you said, a, a very significant amount. Were, mm. were, were you surprised by that? Am I surprised that, that children and young people experience and, and witness racism? I mean, I think we know that what happens in wider society, what happens in the media, of course that filters down to our school classrooms and to the lives of children and young people. So I think these are the strengthens calls for action that community members have been making for a very, very long time. And, and as someone who, you know, is Aboriginal and having experienced racism going through school as well, it, it does have a very profound impact on you. Obviously, that that's, yeah. you know, it's a difficult point in time when you're going through school, obviously, and then you're, you're growing as well as an individual. But that process, I think, is... is often quite a significant one when you're experiencing racism because obviously you're going through that point in time where you're sort of discovering your identity and who you are and things like that and when you know that particular side is, is attacked by you it can have a very profound impact can't it? You're exactly right and certainly other work tells us and I've been involved in some of it myself um, exactly what you've just said because obviously children and, and young people and adolescents, they're such critical times for identity formation and looking at who you are and your place in the world and, and where you fit. So, I mean, racism and, and discrimination, of course, have potential for harm for anyone who experiences it, but even more so for, for children and young people. And everyone has a right to be safe at school and, and outside of school as well. Do, do you think that understanding in terms of perhaps not I guess the levels of uh, discrimination and racism is, un is perhaps not as understood but do you think that understanding that it does exist is, is getting out there more? I mean the number of times I've been asked today am I surprised by these findings surprises me so yeah I think people still well certainly people who don't who don't experience racism themselves or as part of their community I think still shocked and surprised but as you just said Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and many ethnic minority communities are not at all surprised. And, and do you think part of that is sometimes, it, again, it comes back to that thing in terms of those levels of, I guess, ignorance in, in a sense of not understanding that perhaps the actions of these individuals or, or, or people who may be seeing those particular things, not understanding that it is in fact racist? I think that's some of it. I mean, that's, when, you, when you don't have to navigate this stuff on a daily basis you know we talk about the privilege of, of being white right um, and when that's not your daily lived experience you do have that privilege of not having to navigate these issues and so you can deny it or question that it actually exists when it's not your lived experience 
And, you know, we know since colonisation, racism has been deeply embedded into the fabric of society, of Australian society. But that's a pretty uncomfortable topic for a lot of people and, and I think a major issue that Australia is continuing to grapple with today. And I think obviously a very significant thing as well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand this survey is actually sort of one of its kind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that in itself isn't a, uh, is, a, is a pretty big statement. Yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, honestly, that's part of the motivation for doing this is we know that what gets measured is what counts, right? And being able to have this level of data and making sure that these sorts of experiences are included in major government um, data collections is critical. And I think we do need to give credit to the um, Victorian and um, New South Wales Education Department and the Human Rights Commission who did partner with us on this project to make it happen. Um, So I think the tide is is turning slowly, but obviously there's still a lot more work to be done so that this is a conversation that, that we can all have. And, and do you think a lot of that comes back to education at, at all levels, whether that's a community level, um, you know, families, government, whatever it may be? I mean, not that long ago, obviously, we had the the Adam Goods documentary coming out as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, obviously, something yeah. needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, I think education and, and knowledge is power, but we also need the political will to change as well, don't we? So, um yeah, I think we need multiple multiple forms of action um, for there to be yeah sustainable and, and deep change. And, and in terms of that political will, do, do you think that's getting there, or how, how do you see that progressing? <laughs> oh, that's that's really challenging to answer. I think. <laughs> Um, I mean, the fact that we can have reports like this come out and and even have a conversation and have education departments stepping up and and measuring these sorts of experiences, I think that's a positive. But, yeah, I I think there's um, a lot more need for for really careful, um, deep listening and change. So what what are some of the next steps from this point now Mm. then? Yeah, so the next um, phase of the project, we already have developed and, and piloted and um, are writing up at the moment a program that we developed for schools to support teachers and students to speak out against racism when it occurs. So that'll be out early next year. Um, obviously, supporting schools to do more in this space is important, but it can't just be left up to schools and certainly not to students themselves. That's part of it, but that's only um, a small piece of the pie we need. We need all of society to step up and um, continue to address this this issue. You know, we've got coronial inquests happening around the country or have happened around the healthcare system or um, the criminal justice system. You know, we really need political leadership and systemic reform around some of these these issues and, you know, of course, follow-up from statements, statements and, you know, they're really fundamental issues as well that need to be addressed and that all filters down to the sort of data that we're seeing in this report that's out today. That was the lead research of the Speak Out Against Racism Racism Survey, Associate Professor Naomi Priest. And that concludes Strong Voices for today. If you want to check out any of the stories that we've covered, um, they will be posted on our website at www.caama.com.au. Hope you have a lovely day. Strong Voices. Good job.